This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, it's decorative gourd season, so we're talking squash, which of course is in the gourd family, like the genetics of breeding a better-performing pumpkin, too. And we'll be looking ahead to uh, big cooking holidays and tackling your food science questions, yes. But first, highly processed foods, ultra-processed foods, have been getting a lot of attention recently. But exactly what are they, and what's the research linking them to your health? Here to help digest that, sorry, with other selected short subjects in science is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American. She's here in our New York studios. Welcome back. Thank you. How do you define ultra-processed? Well, that's the tricky thing because different researchers define it a little bit differently. But in general, if something's ultra-processed, it's something you couldn't make at home. It's got an additive to maybe increase its shelf life that you wouldn't be able to find in your standard grocery store, or it was prepared using an industrial process that you couldn't handle in a regular kitchen. Um, So a lot of foods are processed, but ultra-processed goes a step beyond that. Oh, So let's take us us from the food to the ultra-processed, the steps that you Sure. So if you have just like a raw ingredient, that's a, you know, an unprocessed or minimally processed Mm -hmm. food. Then there's uh, a type of of culinary preparation foods. So like the oils you cook with or maybe sugar. And processed foods are foods that are a combination of those first two. It's got the raw ingredient and then you've prepared it. So maybe you've cooked, you've fried an egg in oil, you've processed that egg. Um, But ultra processed goes a step beyond that. So ultra processed is like you go to the frozen food aisle and it's a food called egg poppers and it's got eggs and then a list of chemicals after it and extra sugar and bright colors on top. There's a lot of extra ingredients you don't have in your pantry. Exactly. That's in there. Um, there So how much do scientists know about ultra-processed foods to our health. Is there a connection? There is. Ultra-processed foods have been linked with with issues like having developing type 2 diabetes, with obesity, and with some other health problems, including even slightly elevated risk of certain cancers and things like that. So the problem is we're still trying to figure out just what that connection is. How, what is ultra-processed foods, what do they do to us that, um, that, that is responsible right. for these differences right. because we know we eat a decent amount of them. Like adults in the U.S., roughly 60% of our calories are coming from 60, ultra-processed 60, food. 60? Yeah, 60. yeah. It's a lot of potato chips. Right, right. So it's it's... It's something that's a big part of our diets, but there's such a range of what you mean by ultra-processed. So ultra-processed, I mean, technically something like canned vegetables, they often have additives in them, and they've been processed in an industrial setting. Technically, that's ultra-processed, but obviously eating a can of vegetables isn't doing the same thing for your health as eating like um, a deep-fried corn dog. Right. Well, that you've actually put it right in perspective. <laughs> let's let's move on to some other news. There's a, there's a new telescope in operation by the European Space Agency. That's right. The Euclid Telescope sent back its first images, which means it's been calibrated and it's ready to scan the sky. Wow. And what what can it do differently? Let's say from Hubble or Webb. So the um, Euclid takes sort of larger, big swaths of the sky in a single image, as opposed to a lot of other telescopes that take a bunch of little pictures, and then those are later composited together into a single image. And Euclid's goal is to to create this really detailed map that doesn't it doesn't just capture a large uh, swath of sky, but it also looks back. It looks into a great distance. It can go 10 billion light years away wow. is where it's looking, which means it's also looking 10 billion light years back in time. Well, you know, maybe it, it will help 
find some of my favorite subjects, dark matter, dark energy. Yes, that is one of the goals. By looking at where matter is in the universe, the matter we can see, by seeing how it's distorted or how it's distributed in space, that helps researchers calculate how it's being affected by things like dark matter and dark energy, which we can't spot directly. Mm -hmm. This uh, next story came as a bit of a surprise to me. I feel like I'm always surrounded by distractions, but this story says that researchers say we're getting better at paying attention. I would think that just the opposite. We're not I getting know, better, you know? I know, but despite despite our expectations, yes, yeah, since about 1990 to 2021, research, research Researchers looked at a bunch of different studies that had been done using a test of attention, a particular kind of test. Right. And they found that scores have gone up in general in adults uh, in that 30-year period. What kind of test could you give somebody so for this is paying a attention? Right. So this is a test where you have to pay attention, but it's also kind of boring. So you've got a line of letters, uh, P's, the letter P or the letter D. And above them, you've either got one, two, three, or four markings. And your right. job is to go through this line and cross, cross out every letter that has two markings above it. So you've got to be paying attention, but it's the same letter each time, so it's kind of boring. And you don't want to make mistakes, but you also right. want to go as fast as possible because you've got a time limit. So by doing this line after line after line, it's a good way of, of assessing how well people are able to pay attention. Speaking of people, are, are we talking everybody, all age groups doing the same thing? No. So the adults who took the test seem to get better over time, but children's scores have stayed roughly the same. Really? Do we know why that might be? Well, kids seem to have gotten a little bit faster at doing this test. They've kind of rushed more, but at the same time, they've gotten less accurate. So they make more mistakes because of that rushing. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to another uh, subject that's getting our attention, of course, and that's AI. There's been some movement recently on regulating AI. Tell that's us about that. That's right. Last week, there were two AI events. One was that President Biden signed an executive order on AI. This is a really big uh, piece of this is a really big rule. It's like 20,000 words. And it's the biggest piece of, of the biggest regulation for AI we've seen so far. And it's got re requirements, for instance, that if a company is developing an AI model of a certain size, like something very large, larger than GPT-4, which is OpenAI's uh, current big model, big large language model, um, then they have to tell the government and they have to be transparent about where they got the training data for it and the type of thing they're doing. Uh, another requirement is that federal agencies have to make their own regulations. So it's sort of like a regulation telling other people to make regulations with the idea that any AI the federal government uses, it has to be vetted, it has to be tested to make sure it's not a security threat and that kind of thing. And then at the same, a couple days after he signed that order in the UK, there was an AI safety summit at a place called Bletchley Park. And well, a famous Bletchley Park. That's right, the famous Bletchley Park. And um, dozens of countries signed on to the what they call the Bletchley Declaration, which is uh, basically it's another rule saying we need to make rules. It's essentially an agreement that we should do something to regulate AI, right. but it doesn't actually have any specifics. But the Europeans have always been ahead of regulation. That's right. right. Yeah. So at the same time, this was a, this was countries even not that this included countries that weren't in Europe. But at the same time, the European Union is coming up with its own AI legislation. And just like they were with passing le privacy legislation, they seem to be ahead of the U.S. on this. Right. Um what, what did they decide? Is, is it going to change anything? I mean, is this all voluntary? Anything with teeth in it? So the the Bletchley one, not really toothy. No. Not really toothy. Biden's, it's got some teeth, 
But a lot of it is sort of setting up future rules. Ah. And because it was an executive order, it's right. a lot of experts say that they, they still think it's important for Congress to pass legislation about this to make sure it's not something that can be just repealed by the next person in office. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to uh, recently a, a birding group. This was really interesting. Suggests changing the names of some North American bird species. That's right. What What is going on there? So as you know, a lot of birds are named after humans. And the American Ornithological Society uh, has said that they want to change all of those names to descriptive names that don't include humans in them. And some of the humans who birds are named after are totally non-controversial, but some of them actually have nothing to do with birds or ornithology, and others have bad histories. Like, for instance, there's one kind of sparrow named after um, a historical figure who was a slave owner and who was a vocal opponent of abolition. So a lot of people are like, we don't really want to honor this person by having the bird named after him. Why not have the bird named after its habitat instead? Oh. And there are other birds there thinking the same way. Exactly. The idea is they don't want to go through and just like say, this person is bad, this person's good, this person's bad, this person's good. They're just throwing all the people out and going to replace all of those names with more descriptive ones. Any, any, any names, you know, that are descriptive of the bird, not the names of people, but how they describe the birds changing? Um, so the tricky thing is some birds look a lot alike. So, you know, if you've seen one sparrow and you're, you're not a birder, it might be kind of difficult <laughs> to tell it apart from a different sparrow right. species. So that's why they're thinking maybe this could be the pine woods sparrow named oh. after its habitat instead of named after its appearance. And then other ones, you might have something like the long-tailed duck because or it has the, a particular... The little bird this or yes. the little bird that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's talk about this story about the senses of the elephant-nosed fish. What makes that so interesting? So the elephant nose fish has this really cool ability called electrolocation. And it essentially is emitting a weak electric field in pulses from an organ near its tail. And it has sensors all over its skin that can sense distortions in that field when objects move through it. So it, that lets it sort of detect what's nearby. But now researchers have found that would just let it detect things in 2D. In order to bring that picture into 3D, it does a little dance. So by moving uh, moving around and doing this like shimmy back and forth in space, it changes how its, um, how its skin receptors are angled and it allows it to build a more accurate picture. Because it lives in water that's what, cloudy water. So it Exactly. It lives in this very murky habitat. So electrolocation lets it lets it defy the uh the poor visual input. Now I understand there's a very importantly named body part. In that's this right. Fish. So the elephant nose fish's elephant nose is this uh, this protrusion that's actually growing out of its chin. It looks like an elephant trunk and it is called a schnozenorgan. Schnazen organ. Schnazen organ. <laughs> and it's filled with these electrical receptors so it can wiggle it around and it can use it to dig in the silt of the bottom of the river and try to find something good to eat. Wow. How did you find this? How do you find these stories? I mean, I just waggle my schnazen organ around <laughs> <laughs> and they come to me. <laughs> uh, you know, I think somewhere Jimmy Durante must be. People of a certain age will remember Jimmy Durante. He's, he had a giant nose as a, he was a comedian and uh -huh. he was called the schnoz. Uh -huh. So somewhere, somewhere in the he world. He would have gotten along well with the elephant nose fish. <laughs> elephant nose fish. Could have had some for pets. He, he, he could have, you know. Um, I, 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 where, when you search for stories, where do you look for your stories? How do you find them? So some of it is scientific journals, and some of it is, you know, if there's an event in the news, yeah. what is the science angle on it? Is there something I can explain from a tech point of view? So, right. for instance, you know, nobody was publishing an academic paper about Biden's AI uh, executive order, but I thought that's something that's techy, that's, you know, 
people are going to be interested That's in the great. future of AI and AI regulation. Well, would you hang around for the rest of the hour with Absolutely. us? Absolutely. Okay. I'd love to.